Hey, Eastern Oregon, welcome to this no November 2nd version of AM Live on EOA, your connection to Eastern Oregon, and we are on the EOA network. We're glad you're here with us today. How are you doing, Good man? Morning. Morning. First Friday. First Friday. Uh, busy weekend this weekend. We had a busy week, too. Uh, the, the trunk street was on, what was that, Tuesday night? Yeah, Tuesday yes, night. Yes, yeah, yeah. And then... It's just yeah, it's a busy week. And those those pictures were really nice that you took. Oh yeah, that's fun. Totally, totally different than sports, but kind of the same. Yeah, yeah. I just try. I mean, I saw a lot of people. I just so yeah I just get, was able to like make them pose. You know? Yeah, some of them. It was all, it, I mean, Halloween's not really my thing, but it was all right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was. Uh, it was clearly a lot of kids' things. Yeah. Man, um, there were a ton. That's what Halloween's for, right? Kids. Right. Yeah. Give them some candy. And then I saw a thing where parents are like bribing their kids to sell their candy to them to buy some a toy from the store so the kids don't eat all the candy. Huh. Makes sense. No way I would have traded. We used to carry, when I was a kid, we'd take pillowcases. Yeah. To, I, to get our candy. Right. Yeah. And then we'd sort it all at the end of the night, you know, into like Reese's. Yeah. No way I would have traded my candy for, for a toy at that. Not that much candy. We, yeah, we were. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no. One of the, one of the comedians at night, I, uh, not Fallon, but anyhow, they had a thing where had the, where the parents would steal their kids as candy or whatever that, and they would record their videos, you know, like your candy's gone because it, I think it was, what it was, or it's, and they would record the reaction of their kids, and uh, you know, cl clearly it wasn't gone. But uh, but man, kids were just devastated, as yeah. you and I would have. Been. You work yeah. hard for that candy. <laughs> you have to. You got to go to a lot of houses to get it. I mean, if you think about it, like if you're getting one or two pieces at every house, and you have half of a pillowcase full of candy, that's yeah. a lot of. It's a lot of uh, houses that you got to go. Yeah. So the downtown trunker treat is a good deal. They don't have to work. I mean. Got to walk the downtown corridor, but that's nothing like the number of houses in a neighborhood you used to have to hit. In order yeah, to they're, they're, they don't do that as much now, huh? Like going house to house. Well, I, well, I think on purpose. I mean, you know, I mean, if it's contained downtown, there's a little, I mean, La Grand Main Street, I mean, people have to apply I mean, it's actually there's a little bit of vetting, so not every not every person. I mean, the people that are handing out candy candy are known. It's they're either downtown businesses or they're businesses that are outside the area, and they bring. That's why it's called trunk or treat. Yeah. So yeah. So huh. so yeah. So I mean, there's a little bit of vetting involved. That was the but part of the fun when I was a kid was going to people's houses and meeting new people right you know what i mean like yeah you get you know if you're it's your first year in the neighborhood you meet everybody on halloween yeah i man in growing up in wyoming it always was cold i mean it was it, it was used to it always was be snowing. cold here too it was snowing or something it was miserable you know i it mean used you to could be like that here yeah. when i was a kid on halloween there was snow almost every year you just had to deal with it well, and you could work on some kind of a costume, but you were going to put a coat over the top of it anyhow. That's uh, or just make your costume very yeah bulky yeah bulky yeah. The other thing the, about Halloween that I that 
I mean, I never did Halloween here as an adult, but I saw the adults engaging in it. Yeah. Was the dads that go with the kids. Uh-huh. The, the the houses that they hit where the other the dad of the house knows that dad there was always a beer exchange like, <laughs> you know you're out there walking here here's right a, here's oh yeah, a, yeah here's a brew for you yeah. you know what i mean like or have a you know have one on the porch real quick yeah and that you know you can't really do that at a trunk and treat right <laughs> yeah just hand out a beer when my kids were little we lived in seattle like in the university district i mean right in the city and so and we would have to, there was no event like this. So we would take the kids out to some rich neighborhood, some neighborhood oh. where some, yeah, but it, you know, but still it was a, cause you, you couldn't do it in the city. I mean, it just didn't make sense, you know? So, yeah. Anyway. I got to trick or treat a rich neighborhood one time when I was a kid in San Diego, cause my grandparents lived in uh, Rancho Bernardo, which yeah. is like a super high end gated, yeah. you know, they have their own homeowners associating a pool yeah and man that was nice because you always got the best things full yeah. but how would you how would you trick-or-treat at a gated house you know no you like, gated community oh okay okay got it yeah, got it got not it a house, no yeah. like the community had its right. own security yeah can you just pool. imagine though some kid pushing a button at a gate like you might get something really cool if you <laughs> yeah. did that who you knows know. yeah, yeah. <laughs> might be worth trying yeah who knows what do you think the age cut off for trick-or-treating should be um, I don't know. I mean, if it, for my kids, you know, I mean, once they get into junior high. Yeah, like, I think mine were done around 13, 12. Yeah, yeah. But I see kids out there like 16, 17 dressed up trick-or-treating. Well, and I guess it's, I mean, now everybody is dressing up, but, you know, the motivation of getting candy, I, I don't know. It's like middle school 12 13 yeah, yeah. I, mean, I mean i'm still that's kind of it. I mean, when you see a when you see a uh you know an older teenager yeah trick-or-treating yeah just you should be out snatching bags not trick-or-treating <laughs> that's a whole different that's a whole different thing <laughs> that was popular when i was a kid too i mean it happened yeah. quite often yeah the big kid you had to be on the lookout for the older kids on their bikes and that is just like i i i have you you worry about the kids that do that later in life. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We're going to do sports. Let's do it. Yeah. Morning Sports Report brought to you by Hobby Habit. 411 First Street in Grand. Go check them out. They have Traxxas RC. They have uh, the biggest Lego selection in Eastern Oregon. The store is absolutely amazing. Joe and his team have done a great job updating it. it they have Magic the Gathering cards. They have Kandamas. They have STEM supplies for, for your kids. And, man, it's just the they've done a great job. Hobby Habit and LeGrand, just for the fun of it. On Tuesday, the LHS girls soccer team lost in the opening round of the playoffs, one nothing to North Bend right here at Community Stadium. And that pretty much... Wraps up the fall sports season for the high school, except for cross country. And they run in the state championship this weekend. Um, EOU cross country will be running their conference championship this weekend in Caldwell. Um, I think the men's team is number six in the country and the women's team is receiving votes. So they're right outside the top 25. I sat down with CCC runner of the week, 
Lauren Mitchell this week, and here's a little clip of that. Um, what are you going to school for? Uh, exercise science. Exercise science. What do you want to be when you grow up? Um, I originally wanted to be an athletic trainer, but I just I don't really know anymore. I'm like leaning more towards that again. But what had you leaning away from it? You see the hours they have to put in up there? Kinda, yeah. It's a grind, <laughs> it man. Is a and lot. They work their butts off. Yeah. And I just know like with like a family and stuff, that's like a lot and so Yeah, talk to Chris about that. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's a it's a tough job, man. Mm -hmm. I don't I mean, I couldn't imagine doing it. They're they're there all the time. They are, yeah. And traveling and just mm -hmm. everything. Um, so for you personally, um, do you uh do you like pineapple on pizza? Um, I'll eat it. No, eat you wouldn't order anything. it though. You're gonna go in and order a Hawaiian. Probably pizza. not. What's your favorite food? Uh, probably like a good beef steak. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> you like lean ones or do you like like ribeye, like one uh, with nice? Marbling? I like like ribeye. Yeah, me yeah. too, by far. <laughs> yeah. So those those interviews will probably come out Friday, maybe Monday. Um, we'll see. I, I'm going to sit down with the wrestlers today and do the wrestling preview show. EOU football is at home this weekend on Saturday against SOU for su senior day. So they're going to celebrate their seniors. That's a one o'clock kickoff at Community Stadium. That should be fun. The EOU football team, their record doesn't necessarily reflect it, but they're they're good. They're, they've really turned the corner in the last two weeks in a row. They've been within one score of beating two top 10 teams. And, and just that alone signifies that this team has gotten better. They started 0-4, and, and they've won two of four since. And both of the games that they lost have been just, you know, close games, that a couple of bounces, and, and they win that game. So get out there and support them and check it out. Uh, EOU men's and, men's and women's wrestling are at home this weekend. They wrestle Evergreen, the men, at 3 o'clock on Saturday. The women wrestle Evergreen at 4 o'clock on Saturday. And then the men turn around and wrestle Corbin at 5 on Saturday. And then on Sunday, both teams host the Mountaineer Open. So a whole weekend of wrestling up at Quinn. Go check it out. I think so on Saturday, they're wrestling in Quinn. And then on Sunday, they're going to wrestle in the field house, which is, which is kind of cool. We have that extra facility where we can host events, and it's pretty cool. Um, the number three EOU volleyball team goes on the road this weekend. They play Walla Walla on Saturday. They play LCSC on Friday. If they win both of these games, they clinch the regular season CCC championship, and they also earn the right to host the CCC tournament, which was huge. Um, not only just ticket revenue, but also being at home. We have the best student section in volleyball in the whole conference, and, and it's a huge advantage for the OU volleyball team to play at home. So, I mean, they shouldn't have any trouble beating LCSC and Walla Walla, both lower level teams in the conference. And and so that'll be exciting because the CCC tournament here is super exciting. And then if we, it, as, as the winner of the league, we'll most likely get a home game in the opening round of the of the uh, national tournament too, which is always exciting because that's a team from another part of the country that comes in and plays us here, and, and we have great fans up there. Um, yeah, so the sports report is brought to you by Hobby Habit here in Legrand. Go check them out, 411 First Street. Cool. Good stuff, man. It'll be uh, – hopefully the weather's nice this Friday – or excuse me, this Saturday for the game. 
Uh, We're going to find out here in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> I, I forgot to get the weather graphic. But uh, I guess we aren't going to. I guess we are going to find that. Yeah. Um, but let's take a look outside. And, and we got it. You pulling up the weather? I'm just looking to see what the yeah. temperature is going to be. It's going to rain on Saturday. It's going to rain on Saturday. It's going to be warm, 53, but it's going to rain. That's good. All righty. 86% humidity and rain. <laughs> well, I would have, had I guessed just by looking outside, it'd be like, yeah, this is going to stick around for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not exciting at yeah. all. Yeah. Well, and uh, so our high school football is done. So that, that part of our lives are a little bit more freed up, but we're on to other stuff. So when, when is the, volleyball when are the conference when is that championship that'd be the weekend after so, so not this weekend but the following weekend cool we'll start all right okay well glad you're here with us today we have matt keenan from uh the local old dfw he's a biologist and we're gonna be talking about game populations and the things that affect that and uh, it's an opportunity for you. If you have questions, you can submit those in the comments and we'll uh, filter those and pass those on. Not everything might not be able to be answered, but we'll give it a shot. So glad you're here with us and we'll be back in just a minute. back matt keenan glad you're here with us man thank you so much for jumping in yeah so, yeah my pleasure yeah happy to be here good Thanks how you doing me. today great yeah <laughs> it's a little wet today but it's um you know rifle elk season just started so yeah. it's a pretty exciting time in the odfw world and yeah a lot of hunters out there so it's a good time yeah so what does a marine biologist do? I mean, let's just start there, I guess. Yeah. And how do well, you I become do marine one? work? So okay, I'm, I'm sorry, mostly, not marine. I'm sorry. Okay. Wildlife biologist. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So yeah, we're, um, you know, responsible for all wildlife species within Union County um, or within our district. And my right. district is mostly Union County. Okay. Um, and so we spend a lot of time monitoring wildlife populations. Um, you know, we're mostly focus our attention on game species. Um, most of our funding does come from hunters. So we spend a lot of time doing surveys, helicopter surveys or ground surveys and analyzing the data and making recommendations for tag numbers and yeah. hunt structures and that sort of thing. Um, but we also respond to a lot of nuisance and damage calls. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of 
wildlife can certainly cause conflict too. And so there's a lot of kind of human dimensions aspects to the job too, where we're um, assisting, you know, producers, landowners, homeowners, you know, folks that are having, having issues with wildlife. Um, so, you know, we, it's really a diverse uh, job. We don't really know what we're going to be doing for the day often until we get there yeah. and the phone calls start coming in and it's, it's a lot of, um, you know, kind of responding to whatever's happening. Uh, but in the bigger picture, kind of long term, it's is trying to manage populations for um, you know sustainability, so these populations be sustainable in the long term, and provide a resource for the people of Oregon, and kind of strike that balance between uh, opportunity and resource, and uh, kind of too much of a good thing sometimes, or yeah. in certain areas, and and uh, where there's conflict, trying to mitigate the conflict, and so. Yeah. so I mean, most of the time, but, but there are, in Wyoming, we used to have called game wardens. Mm -hmm. Okay. But is that a, I mean, and, and most of the time that's what hunters interact with. They're right. checking their tags and stuff, but that's not you. That's not your department. How, right. I mean, just yeah, help me understand so yeah, it. No, sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Oregon is one of two states along with Alaska where um, the department of fish and wildlife then actually conduct our law enforcement. We basically okay. contract out to Oregon State Police. Okay. And so they have a wildlife division, fish okay. and wildlife division. Um, and they'll do, uh, you know, the citations, they'll they'll build the cases on folks poaching and, and all the other wildlife and fish related uh, enforcement activities. Now that said, we do spend a lot of time uh, during the hunting season driving around and, and talking to hunters, checking hunters in camp, make sure they have the right tag, Got find it. out what the harvest is like in certain areas. And and so we are still um, kind of that on the ground interaction with the hunters. Right. We, we definitely still do that. That's a very important part of the job for me. I really try to prioritize being out there and engaging with our hunters. Uh, they do pay our bills right. and they have a lot of questions and we pull up to camp and, and we're really happy to help answer those questions. Um, so, That's awesome. Yeah. Cause it, it's, it's dense. I mean, there is a, I mean, when you dive into the ODFW world right. and it comes to hunting, right. there's just a lot of data. There's a lot yeah. of information. The tag system is like super confusing That's at times. True. And so I would, I mean, that customer relation thing yes. that you guys do. I mean, that's, that's really helpful. It's extremely important. Yeah. And I think the fact that, um, you know, we aren't re solely responsible for the law enforcement actually allows us to engage yeah. more in that customer service realm um, with the hunters. So it, it works out really well in the state. Yeah. Well, that's, that's awesome. So uh, the, the reason that you're here, one of the reasons that kind of sparked this is we were having a conversation with uh, Commissioner Donna Beveridge, and we were talking about how elk coming down affect the feed yeah. that farmers, the haystacks and so on and so forth and, and how that's managed. And so then that was part of the question was, you know, populations and so i don't know why you just kind of launch about that sure and, yeah, yeah talk to us about those issues and yeah. yeah no i'm happy to it's great i'm glad i can be here to talk about that because it's a really important topic um you know it affects people's livelihoods right and so you know look uh you know elk they're an incredible resource for the people of oregon whether it's recreational opportunities with the rich hunting traditions here um just aesthetics a lot of people just like to um you know see the elk wildlife viewing and photography uh, but also for consumptive purposes, you yeah. know, a lot of people fill their freezers with elk and especially here in Northeast Oregon, um, you know, it's an incredible resource, but at the same time, elk can be incredibly destructive to agricultural crops. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's, it's sort of our job to, to try to balance those two things. 
Uh, and honestly, it's one of the biggest challenges in wildlife management is, is elk management and elk distribution. One of the biggest challenges I face. Um, but, I, you know, I certainly embrace the challenge. I'm, I'm here to talk about it. And if there's any listeners or viewers out there that have other ideas at the end of this show about things that we could do differently, other tools we can use to help reduce conflict, call our office and talk to me. I'm, I'm like more than happy to entertain any other ideas because honestly, I wish we could do more to, to help landowners with conflict. We do have a lot of tools and we can get into those today, um, but we're always looking for, for new ideas uh, because I know it, it can really impact um, producers' bottom line, the, the damage that elk can cause. Has it, I guess the the thing we where we should start is has it increased? I mean, you know, from the from the non farmer out there, mm -hmm. I mean, it's beautiful. I mean, yeah. you you know, I mean, we'll we'll see. My daughter lives out in Cove, and you know, she posted a video on our stuff. It's been a couple of years ago, and I mean, there were probably 150 head of elk that crossed right. in front of her. You know, yeah. and it's like, I mean, it's a magnificent thing. Yeah, it really is from the farmer, they have a totally different oh, sure. perspective. But has that problem increased over the years and and why? Well, you know, I can tell you that elk elk damage and elk conflict, uh, especially in Northeast Oregon, is not new at all. This right. has been going on for decades. Right. Um, you know, the Elkhorn Wildlife Area in the Valley was established in the 70s, um, particularly to kind of divert elk from uh, neighboring landowners because there was so much destruction being caused there. Uh, the Blue Mountains Elk Initi Initiative was established 25 years ago for specifically to address the issue of elk distribution and damage on private lands and how we can try to attract elk and keep them more on public lands um, because of these same issues um, that we're having today. And so it, it's certainly nothing new. You know, I can't tell you specifically numbers one way or the other um, in the valley itself. I think that what we have is a situation where elk are very nomadic animals. You know, they will they will find the resources, they will move <laughs> through time. And so certain parts of the valley, right now, the Grand Ronde Valley, um, probably are seeing more elk these years in years past. And there's other parts of the valley that are probably seeing fewer elk mm. than they were in years past. So it probably depends, you know, on, on who you ask um, as to whether they're seeing more elk or experiencing, you know, more conflict with elk than they have in, in years past. Um, but this is kind of the crux of, of elk management for, for decades, um, including here in the Grand Ronde Valley. So it's no, it's, it's not new. Yeah. Do, so what are some of the factors that push them down into sure. the valley? I mean, they're, I mean, they're like everything. They're going to go the, la the least path of resistance. Yeah. They're going to go where the food is the easiest to get, but what are, yeah. but they don't like to be out in the open either. You know, I mean, especially during hunting season, they right. seem to know the calendar really well. <laughs> yeah. Well, they do. And um, so elk will always move from higher elevation areas, the mountain areas, down to the valleys in wintertime. At some point, um, pretty much every winter, unless it's super mild, but for the most part, it's a seasonal migration that occurs throughout the West. Um, and so that'll happen depending on the year, you know, it could be December, January, sometimes even February, if it's a more mild winter that really pushes them down where they have to be on the valley floor. Um, and, and that'll happen at some point, but there's other factors that can push elk down off the public lands and off the higher elevation down to the agricultural lands or just the lower elevation and private lands before winter forces them. 
And those are the those are kind of the opportunities that that we look at um, to to head that off a little bit and hold them up a little longer. You know, it's in, it's in everybody's best interest to keep the elk up on the public lands for as long as possible into mm -hmm. the season until winter pushes them down. And so, you know, we're really fortunate here where we've got the Starkey Experimental Forest right in our backyard, world-class experimental um, station where they've been looking at these very questions, you know, for a few decades. It's a, a partnership between ODFW and the Forest Service, really producing some top-notch research. And, you know, one of the biggest things that they found uh, from early on, still true today, is that elk are extremely sensitive to motor vehicle use. Um, and all, it's not just motor vehicle use. A lot of the newer research is looking even at hiking and horseback riding and just hunters on the landscape. Everybody, all those pressures on public land can affect elk. But motorized use is by far the most important influence. And so uh, what we've seen is with the advent of, of ATVs, um, we really saw increased motor vehicle use starting then on the National Forest. And so at that point, um, that's about the time that the Blue Mountain Elk Initiative really got going and the uh, Dry Beaver Lad Canyon Travel Management Area got established in Stuckey. Mm -hmm. um, and the whole purpose was to, to kind of limit the amount of motor vehicle use on the National Forest to certain designated roads. And uh, at the same time, improve the forage quality on the National Forest. And that's an example where, where that, that really did help. And, and so that kind of models, you know, we were applying that through other areas too. And one of the biggest components of that is, is like you said, elk are going to seek the best forage, right? And so we want to try to make sure that there's really high quality forage on the national forests and um, land use practices have changed quite a bit over time. And so the, there's been a reduction in timber harvest. And that really, the timber harvest, that disturbance creates a lot of that early seral stage habitat that provides prime forage for, for elk and deer. And anyway, uh, so to drill into that for just a minute, so yeah. since we're not doing as much harvesting, right. then there's not as much undergrowth. Is that, is that kind of that's what? Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's the, if you open up the tree canopy, right. uh, then light can get through and it right. can okay. kind of allow the grasses okay. and the forbs and the shrubs to grow. And, okay. and when you don't harvest the timber, that canopy closes up. Got it. Okay. And so there's a lot less light reaching. The floor. Okay. Uh, but also 120 years or so of fire suppression has kind of had the same effect where right. fire can have the same effect sort of as timber harvest. Right. In that it can open up the canopy and it can nourish the soils and it can, you know, inspire better growth. And so, you know, we're really working with the Forest Service and other, you know, our federal partners um, and, you know, private landowners as well um, to, to really try to improve forage quality up off the valley. Um, through timber harvest, through prescribed burns, and very importantly, through managing motor vehicle use so that elk feel secure enough to stay up on the forest. Okay. And, and so that's one of the issues that we see um, is that the kind of the influx of public use up on the public lands can push the elk down before, before winter would have done that naturally. Okay. Um, and certainly during hunting season, mm -hmm. there's going to be a lot of ATV use. There's more motor vehicle use sure. in some of those areas. Yeah. So... Okay. So what else? What, what else? I mean, yeah. a, a severe winter, an early winter snow will push them down earlier, I would imagine. Yeah, for sure. Yep. If you've got an, if you have an, an early winter, um, again, it's, you have to have pretty deep snow to, to, to push elk down in, you know, off their, their summer range. If that's yeah. going to be the, the factor that, that pushes them, it's got to be pretty, pretty deep. But if we do get a, a real, you know, heavy snow and, in November, even it could start getting them to, to move down okay. um, for sure. But 
it's, you know, really the, and it's not just in Starkey, it's um, research throughout the West has shown that these, you know, human disturbance and human impacts are one of the biggest things that kind of motivate elk to move down. It's funny, a lot of the research shows that the habitat quality up on, say, National Forest, higher elevation um, areas, if it has an open enough canopy to allow the grasses yeah. and forbs to grow and all that, is actually better for elk than the agricultural lands in the valley. So they they would be better served at staying up at higher elevation. Right. Um, but the problem often is that they just don't feel secure enough to do so. Well, and I, down. and I follow, I mean, I follow that conversation during the non-winter times. I mean, sure. you know, the elk are just like, I mean, if you, if you want to get out into the middle of nowhere, whatever it might be, and you want some yeah. private time or you're looking for a camp or whatever it might be, and you can hear other hunters or you can hear cars driving by. Right. I mean, you're just using the same senses that the elk is. Yeah. Let's go away from right. that. Let's move yeah. away from that. Yeah. So, but I'm, but I'm not connecting the motor vehicle use, which happens all the time or is increased during, I'm not, I'm not connecting that to them actually coming down during the winter. I mean, right. sure. And yeah. that, and that is, um, the, I mean, the winter effect is going to be there no matter what, okay. at some point they're going to get pushed right. down. Right. Got it. But now another thing that we're seeing is just, you know, obviously these irrigated pivots and these fields right. can, can be quite an attraction for elk and, <laughs> and especially, you know, more research out of Starkey, actually brand new research has shown that the growing season for the, the plants that deer and elk eat has been shortened by about 30 days total throughout the year um, over the past 25 years. Okay. Because of all these years we've had consecutive years of drought. I mean, a lot of people have noticed it's hotter and drier. Right. Right. And what that's done is it's, it's shrunk that growing season. Right. And so those plants aren't available for as long as, as they were in the past. And so what happens is you've got these irrigated lands um, mm. down below. And now they're, you know, the plants senesce sooner in the fall. They die and don't provide nutrition they used to provide for the elk short uh, earlier than they used to in the fall. Yeah. So now the elk are, are looking at those irrigated lands, right. um, you know, as a higher attractant than they used to be right. uh, because of that. So there's a lot of factors that are kind of, playing into this distrib elk distribution challenge. Yeah. Go, let's go back for a minute to the experimental forest thing. Yeah. So uh, talk a little, how big is that? What does that involve? How does that work? What are that? I mean, what makes an experimental forest? I don't, I, yeah, I mean, I, sure. Yeah. And I don't want to speak too much out of turn. I don't yeah. work directly yeah. with it, but it's, um, it's several thousand acres, you know, I don't know, 30 or 40, somewhere in that ballpark, there's different pastures. And so okay. I'm not sure what the total is, but they give you some frame of reference for the size. Yeah. And it's basically a fenced in, um, area, a high fence that doesn't said 30 or 40,000. Yes. So, okay. Um, approximately. Yeah. Again, don't, don't, don't quote me. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. No, no, I mean, it's course, a, and, it's a and, big area. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah. So 30 or 40,000 acres though. That's Is right. that what you said? Yeah. I mean, I, so go ahead. I'm sorry. So, but yeah, I mean, they've got separate, they've got, um, several pastures and there's high fence, you, you know, around the area. And so they can regulate, um, deer and elk are not, uh, for the most part, they don't get through the fence. Okay. And, and so they're able to really monitor the populations and kind of see how they respond to different research. And, um, and they've done a lot of different studies throughout the years. And, and a lot of it started with this, you know, looking at the motor vehicle use. And now, you know, they're looking at a lot of nutrition-based stuff. And that's where the forage analysis came up recently with the growing season. And so they're really able to to kind of 
you know, focus on that sort of a closed population, yeah. which we don't have generally in the wildlife world, a right. closed population because animals don't respect boundaries, of course, right. and they go where they want to. And so having a fenced in area has allowed us in partnership with the Forest Service to, to really um, conduct some excellent research projects. Good. So how much, certainly one of the things that hunters talk about are the predators or, you know, yeah. the, how much of the predator issue, whether, whatever that might be, are a part of forcing the elk down. Is that, yeah. is that a thing? Well, uh, I mean, yes and no. And uh, certainly predators are going to influence, um, elk, you know, all wildlife behavior. And so right. we can't rule any of that out. Right. Certainly an interaction between, um, elk and wolves in particular is a question that we get a lot recently. Um, but you know, these issues have been occurring, uh, well before we had wolves in Oregon. Sure. Um, and certainly we have cougars and we have bears too. And so, um, you know, to the extent that predators influence elk distribution, again, what we've seen through a lot of the, the, the studies and, and what we're seeing on the ground, that the human impacts are, are far greater than the impacts of predators. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, they could be part of the, the you equation. Mean as far as pushing people. As far as, as, far pushing, as pushing them down. Elk, yeah. yeah, okay. I mean, wolves are going to, and all predators, right, they need a prey base. They're going to stay where there's prey. Right. And so um, if there's not elk up there, uh, then the wolves aren't going to still be up there, you know? Right. And so, um, they're going to follow the animals around, you know? Right, and right. So they get, yeah. They're, they're looking for food the same way the elk are. Yeah, yeah. Right. So if they pushed all the elk away, then they wouldn't have anything left to eat and they wouldn't right. be there anymore. I would imagine, so, I mean, we, you know, wolves are the hot topic, but just my guess is, is that cougars are probably more of a predator of wildlife than i mean I, oh for sure there's far more of them right you know in the state and right. so um you know cougars are gonna take more uh, game animals overall than wolves will that said you know cougars do focus more on mule deer and wolves uh do prefer elk okay but there's far fewer wolves for certain and so right um, how how does you know over the past and this might be too broad of a question you might not know how has particularly the the cougars how does the cougar population affected hunting numbers overall the amount of animals that are available to hunt i mean has that right. is that is that a problem or is that a thing you know that's a really good question it's a crux of like we're rewriting our mule deer management plan right now and so we're mostly talking about mule deer when you're talking about right, cougar right. populations in general because that's their preferred prey source yeah um and certainly cougars eat a lot of mule deer you know right. it, it's true but uh, most of the research in the past has shown that predation on mule deer from cougars has been what we call compensatory mortality which means that on average if if that deer hadn't been eaten by that cur, it would have died of something else. Interesting. Okay. Um, for the most part. Now we know that there's certainly times and places where it's actually additive mortality, where um, that deer wouldn't have died. And mm -hmm. so it's, um, it, it does have an impact on the population in some places uh, for sure. And what we're trying to do is to figure that out um, with our current research and, and to better, you know, be able to articulate and put our finger on those places where it is additive mortality um, where it could help if we were able to, um, you know, increase cougar harvest or, or, you know, address the cougar population in those areas. Um, that said, Oregon has tried this several times in the past with cougar target areas where we went in and administratively removed mountain lions. Um, and we have seen in all those cases, no, no net benefit to the mule deer population from doing so.
Yeah. And so we're still trying to tease tease yeah. that that question apart. Um, but it's one that certainly comes up a lot because mule deer populations have declined significantly throughout the West. Yeah. And in Oregon, you know, in 1994, the voters passed a ban on um, hounding using hounds to hunt mountain lions. And since then, the the cougar population has increased significantly. Yeah, that's hard to hunt. Yeah. And so a lot of people have seen that, and they've also seen at the same time the mule deer population has gone down significantly. Right. right. So it's hard to ignore that, you know. <laughs> um, and 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 so it's a perfect. It's a great question. It's totally understandable why why people look at that as a as a primary factor. But what we're seeing is that it really is um, the the habitat condition has changed so much on the landscape mm -hmm. since the kind of the heyday of mule deer was, you know, several years after a big logging boom. And that resulted in all this new growth coming up and that really produced a ton of mule deer. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's probably one of the biggest factors that, um, that habitat has changed. It's now grown older and it's, uh, less, uh, provides less nutrition for, for deer. And so, what we're actually seeing on the Starkey Experimental Forest, again, keep referencing that, but what they see is that uh, mule deer does now on their summer range, which is, you know, whenever they're on public lands, pretty much that's their summer range. When they need to bulk up, they need to be getting their nutrition, that they are not taking in enough nutrition to support lactation anymore. So if you can't support oh, lactation, okay. you know, right. it's, you're going to have a hard time maintaining a population right. regardless of what the predators are doing. Interesting. You know, and, and so that's, and that's a really important time for them to, again, to, to, to build up their fat reserves because mostly they're living off those fat reserves in the winter. In the winter, they're just trying to get right. out of the snow and stay low key and don't move much and just live off their fat reserves for the most part. So if they can't get what they need on their summer range, they're going to be in big trouble. So let me break that down. So then if, so if they don't have enough to eat mm -hmm. during the summer, mm -hmm. they're, the mothers don't have enough to create milk for the babies. That's right. Okay. Not an adequate quantity to, okay. Okay. For, to raise that young to right. be right. part of the population. Right. Okay. So, so, so that, I mean, so then the population that we do have is struggling That's to right. be healthy. That's right. Because of that. That's right. Yeah. And so, you know, there are certainly times when predation could compound that, you right, know, right. so there's, I'm not trying to ignore the predator question. No, no, but, no. But, but the I foundation mean, here is right. much deeper and broader. Right. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, no, that's, that's all really fresh, helpful information. Let's go, let's go back for a minute to, or just continue the conversation of the elk coming down. Mm -hmm. For those people that are not farmers and don't know, mm -hmm. <laughs> how does, how does, how, how does a farmer, how does that affect, what happens to them? I, I mean, you have this bunch of elk, they eat their haystacks. I know, give us a, yeah. give us a synopsis, a synopsis of the life of a farmer who's dealing with this. Yeah. And so it certainly, you know, it depends and there's a lot of ways they can be impacted. You mentioned haystacks. That's certainly one where, you know, elk will target um, haystacks. Uh, and so uh, that can, there can be a significant financial loss if they destroy a bunch of, you know, hay. they've right. gone through all the effort of, of growing and right. cutting and stacking yeah. this hay. Um, that is one area where uh, we can actually really help and work with the producers to protect those haystacks. In the past, we've provided materials for farmers to actually fence off their haystacks with high fence mm -hmm. to, to keep elk from, from getting in. And so uh, that, you know, that's a place where your exclusion really is, is the best tool. And it can work. And so that is something that can be protected from elk. Um, the bigger fields and the pivots are much harder to protect. And, and 
uh, you know, actually grazing by elk often is not um, a significant source of damage for landowners. I mean, it, it could be, but for the most part, um, the grazing on established fields is, is not the biggest concern that producers have, at least in this valley. It's often the the trampling in the spring when it when it thaws out and the elk are coming through and they really tear up the field. Whatever, whatever crop has been planted in there. there. That's just, right. Yeah. It's significant damage. And also newly planted fields, right. they can actually pull up by the roots and yeah. they can cause significant damage that way too. Wow. Um, so, you know, with those challenges, again, you can't really exclude elk from situations. Um, so for some of, you know, on the valley floor here, where, you know, really we're focused on the biggest um, damage issue is on irrigated croplands. And so we've recently put in place this uh, general season elk damage hunt that basically encompasses the whole valley floor here in Grand Ronde and Baker Valleys and uh, several other places throughout Oregon, actually, um, where it's a long season, uh, August through November, where anybody can just go buy a tag over the counter at Bymart or on your phone or wherever. Mm. And it's valid within that boundary for a cow elk. And of course you need landowner permission to, right. to utilize it. But that program has basically replaced the landowner damage tag program where we used to kind of handwrite damage tags for right. landowners that yep. were experiencing damage. Yeah. So this tool has really helped landowners address damage on that bigger scale, you, you know, where you can't exclude them from coming in, but you can provide pressure. Right. Um, and that's what the hunters do. And that's, you know, even without hunters, um, hazing pressure is probably the most important tool that we have for landowners, we can issue them hazing permits so they can go out and they can haze the elk off their fields and shoot shotgun shells at them. And we can help provide some of the supplies for that um, and just scare them off the property and keep the pressure on them. Yeah. But what the hunters do is they, they kind of provide free hazing right. for the elk, right. you know, and a more sustained <laughs> uh, method where, where they stay on them and they keep kind of pushing them. And yeah. uh, so, um, you know, that's, it's really, Kind of a carrot and a stick approach to this elk distribution with the carrot being we really want to improve the habitat condition and the security mm -hmm. on the public lands and the higher elevation but we also want to keep the pressure on them down in the valley mm -hmm. um, and we do that with hazing and it's not just the hazing permits we can also provide propane cannons and um, you know motion censored alarms that go off when the elk walk by to help the landowners scare them off their property yeah the hazing and the hunting pressure down in the valley is sort of the stick to, yeah. to encourage the elk to stay away from here. Right. Um, and then again, the carrot is the bigger picture that we're trying to work on, on um, the surrounding public and private lands. So what, what can elk eat during the winter that they should eat? I mean, what is available to them? I mean, is the only, yeah, there's lower elevation range lands that still provide some, you know, grasses and, right. but there's, it's just, you know, there's not a lot of nutrition in them. It's, it's sort of like I was saying with mule deer, bulk up in the summer to uh -huh. essentially live off their fat reserves through the winter. So they're going to eat what they can because, of course, they want to eat. Right. And so, <laughs> um, but oftentimes, honestly, they, they're, they're built to not require as much in the winter. They're built to be able to just stay immobile, largely immobile, to move very little during the winter and not exhaust much of their resources okay. and, and live mostly off their fat reserves which is why disturbance on winter range is a major problem in a lot of places um, because that throughout the winter, their fat reserves are, are decreasing mm. and come March, April is when they're actually most vulnerable because they've used up most of their fat reserves mm. now. And that's when you've got people that are out, 
you know, potential recreating or, or shed antler hunting or whatever they're doing that could cause disturbance on that winter range. And that's when uh, the deer and elk really do not need to be bothered. You know, they need to be able to just stay low key, not move much and get through that couple time period until the spring green up comes and they have more forage available. Okay. Um, and so that's sort of how they're built is to survive a lot of the winters, but they will pick at decadent grass, you know, old grass that's, that's basically dried out. They'll, they'll still get that at lower elevations, right. um, which is why they come down off the mountain so they can still reach some of that. And so they're not buried in the snow. <laughs> I have a question yeah. coming in. It's not really a question about the elk coming down into the valley, but I mean, we, we can address it. Why doesn't someone recommend putting in animal fences to slow down traffic? Um, because of animals getting ran over on I-84. Oh, it, we, people are definitely looking at that. Yeah, it's a really good question. It's really important. That's one of the, you know, we started talking about mule deer declines and I could rattle off 12 different things that we know are impacting populations. Um, but certainly uh, there's something like 6,000 deer that we know of that get killed on highways um, every year. And that's wow. just the ones that ODOT can identify plus however many limp off into the woods. Right. And so it's a major issue. Um, and it impacts elk as well. It's not just deer, but I, I think deer are, are more impacted by it. And, uh, yeah, we're absolutely looking at crossings throughout the state and identifying priority areas to establish these crossings. A lot of other states, um, have them and they do include a large area of fencing as the, the viewer, uh, described, and, but what the, those fences will lead to is they'll funnel into, uh, usually an, either an overcrossing or an undercrossing uh -huh. that allows wildlife to, to cross the highways. And, uh, we're absolutely looking at places to do that. Okay. Uh, so random question, why do all the bulls hang out together and all the cows? I mean, what, what's the deal? I mean, did the bulls having beers, I mean, they're not, but I mean, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, maybe talk about that. I don't know. I, I'm, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it, yeah, that's just sort of the structure of elk and deer and a, and a lot of animals <laughs> right. is that they'll, you know, they'll come together, certainly, of course, during the breeding season. So, um, you know, come late August or September, you start seeing the bulls really hanging around the cows a lot more and, and they'll, they'll go in and uh, they'll breed, you know, up to 10 different cows or more. And then they'll kind of go off and either live by themselves or with other bulls. And they're uh, certainly, um, a polygamous situation with, with deer and elk. And so it only requires one bull to breed every 10 cows. Um, so we, we manage for about 10 bulls per hundred cows. It actually requires fewer than that, but it gives us a little bit of buffer. Right. And with bucks, it's the same thing. We manage to have 15 bucks for every hundred does, um, because that's all that we need to get, make sure that every doe gets bred or to make sure that every cow gets bred. Um, because that's kind of the life history characteristic of these animals is that, is that they'll go off and, and they'll kind of do their own thing most of the year and they don't stick around the kind of the family group and the herd is usually the doe with the offspring. Um, and then those offspring, a lot of them will disperse and they'll uh, kind of bring their genes to other areas to help mm -hmm. that genetic flow. But, but really the, the does and the, and the fawns and the yearlings kind of make up that herd group, that family group. And, um, and the bucks just come in or in the case of elk, the bulls just kind of come in when they need to, to, um, to get the breeding accomplished. Huh. So. Interesting. Um, and then also I grew up in Wyoming, which I mentioned before, and you know, we have antelope everywhere. Mm -hmm. And, but during the winter, you'll have groups of antelope that will come down into the valley here. Yeah. 
and where are they at other times of the year? I mean, well, they're actually here in the Valley yeah. uh, most of the year, to be honest. The ones, yeah. I mean, we count them in the summer here in the Valley. Um, do they hang around in the same area that deer do? I mean, um, I mean you know what I mean? Yes and no. They, they don't usually go up very high in elevation. They usually stay very close to the valley floor where deer and elk, most of deer and elk um, are migratory. And so in the summer, they will go up in elevation and they'll come down in the winter. Whereas antelope don't really seem to do that. Um, pronghorn really prefer to stay at those lower elevations. They will move. And depending on the herd, they may be more or less migratory for, for sure. They do have migratory patterns also. But the ones you're referring to here in the Grand Ronde Valley, yeah. they really don't seem to move much. They seem to stay on the valley floor. Um, they might kind of, you know, the, the, they might move south a little bit through Union at some times and move toward Thief Valley a little bit. And, and so, you know, we may see them kind of leave the valley for a little bit to, to head down there and, and wander back. But some years it seems they're, they stay right here in the Grand Ronde Valley. So, yeah, that's I, a new thing, though. When I was a kid, there was no pronghorn huh. in this life. Huh. There, I mean, that's yeah. within the last 20 years. Okay. Well, and it was, and I mean, I, I did did some drone videography of them. It's, it might have been a couple of winters ago. And I mean, there were probably 50, 75 of them, okay, yeah. you know, and mm -hmm. it, it was just so strange because like, you don't see them any other time the whole year, right. you know? Yeah. So, uh, no, that's. What about elk population as a whole? Sure. Like, so if we look at, like, say, over the last, and I don't know how far back you can go, but has has the elk population in Union County risen or declined? I mean, or is that stable? It's, it's been really pretty stable. There have been times it's been higher and times it's been lower. Um, for the most part, it's a stable population. Um, stable. You know, so we, we have several management units that kind of come together here in the Grand Ronde Valley and in Union County. Um, the main ones being the Starkey Wildlife Management Unit, Catherine Creek, Mount Emily, and then up North Valley, we have Winaha. And so, um, you know, two of those wildlife management units, uh, Winaha and Mount Emily, are actually below their management objective by quite a bit for the total amount of, of animals in the population. Um, the Starkey herd is actually kind of part of a, a great herd with the Ukiah and even into Hepner. It's sort of a, a large a, a really big, large herd that, that moves between those areas. And that larger herd overall is above management objective um, by probably a few thousand animals, um, you know, oh. out of about 20,000 though. So we're, you, you know, we're, we're over management objective there. Um, and so in response, we've just, uh, we have a new Starkey cow hunt on the books. And so we have about, I think it's 275 cow tags. Um, new for the uh, Starkey Wildlife Management Area. And that's how, we, that's how we address elk populations is through the issuing of cow tags. So we can impact, you know, we can reduce an, an elk herd um, by issuing cow tags and we can try to let it grow again by reducing those cow tags. And so uh, we are a little bit over in Starkey. And so we have issued some new cow tags there for that hunt. And in the Catherine Creek unit, we are over management objective in Catherine Creek unit two. And so we did just issue a new uh, muzzleloader hunt for Catherine Creek. And uh, next year, it's actually going to be a two month hunt where we're trying to kind of expand that opportunity there to, you know, one, to, to harvest some cows and reduce that population a little bit, but also to provide a tool for landowners um, after that general season elk hunt is over for the months of, um, uh, November and December for that muzzleloader hunt to kind of keep the pressure again, keep, yeah. keep the pressure on the elk. 
and so you know we're a mixed bag here we're currently in union <laughs> county we've got two uh, management units that are above and two management units that are below and we are addressing the units that are above by issuing uh, more tags and so you know a lot of people they look at the elk damage situation and and to them and understandably so the problem is too many elk uh -huh. you know but it, it's it's usually not an issue of too many elk. It's an issue of elk distribution. The elk mm -hmm. are not where we want them to be. Where mm -hmm. they're at. Now, yeah. sometimes there are too many elk, and, and we're addressing those situations mm -hmm. with tags, and, and we can and we do, and we've been successful in doing that over time, which is why overall our population has been stable around yeah. here. It's just um, the distribution can change over time because of all these factors that we've talked about. Have you guys looked at ch changing the seasons, shifting? I mean... Certainly my experience as a hunter is, is that, you know, to have a successful hunt, you, you, you love to have a little bit of snow. So at least you can see tracks, mm -hmm. you can see where that is, but climate change, mm -hmm. regardless of how you feel, the climate has changed yeah. in some manner. And, and everything is about winter is about two weeks later, maybe three weeks later. And that, if, but the hunting seasons have been kind of the same for all of those years. Is that, is this, is there any conversation about that? Is the winter and maybe this in is the winter season shorter or has it shifted? Yeah, I think that's you know hard hard to say yeah. specifically, and I'm not you know a climate expert. I guess it'd be tough for me to right. kind of articulate that. I can tell you as far as the hunting seasons go, you know we really haven't changed. Um, we changed a little bit our structure of how we determine opening day. So some people notice that you know, it's really late season this year is what we had, but it wasn't necessarily in response to what you're talking about. Yeah. It's just in the way that we structure our, basically our opening day of deer rifle season. Um, everything, all the other hunting seasons are based around that. Sure. And so it's like the beginning day of school, right? Everything yeah. else is. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, if we push deer rifle season back too much more, we'll be into the rut. And, uh. and then, um, you know, that would affect our success rates and, and the amount of tags that we could issue. Basically, if, uh, you know, if, if um, hunters are so successful that they harvest too many bucks, right, then we need to reduce tags next year. Right. And that provides less opportunity for folks. Right. And so in eastern states where they have way too many whitetail, um, they structure their hunting seasons around the rut at to, to be during the rut so that people can harvest more animals intentionally. But here we sort of have the opposite problem. We have more hunters than we have resource available. Yeah. And so, it, you know, it would probably be detrimental to um, the hunting opportunity uh, uh, overall if we were to push our season back any further. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm that talking about sense. pushing it forward. Oh, earlier in the year? No, no. no I mean, he, push, yeah, he, when he yeah, said yeah. back, that's what he meant. Yeah, yeah. yeah, if you yeah, get yeah. into November hunting hunt, hunting deer, then you're right. going to be pushing into the rut. So, okay. Um, yeah, I think our structure is going to stay pretty similar through time. It, it, it seems to work. It doesn't seem like we've had any real Because right now you have deer, deer season. And then, and then the elk season starts after that. Is that correct? Yeah. We have archery before deer rifle okay. for deer and elk. Archery season comes first. And that's the other thing is the archery season for elk has always included the elk rut um, because, okay. you know, bows are much less effective tools and sort of to compensate for that and make it a reasonable opportunity for folks to harvest an animal. Most archery elk seasons throughout the West or, or throughout the country where we have elk are structured around the rut so that Got hunters it. can hunt during the rut. Okay. So for all those reasons, the, the structure's, you know, fixed pretty well where it is. Yeah. All right. Well, fascinating. What, what, can, what can the, you know, like people that are watching or people that 
you know, are interested, what can the general public do to help with, you know, the, the elk coming down into the valley? Like, outside of yeah. obviously getting uh, damage control tags and, you know, harvesting the cow, what else? Is there anything else people can do? Um, yeah, you know, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I think people can, they can pay attention to our travel management rules um, and, and really kind of mind, be mindful of the, the pressure that they cause on the, on the public lands that do it, that does affect elk distribution, because a lot of that does directly impact the landowners that are, that are suffering uh, because of it. So I, I think that's one thing that they can do. Um, be mindful of, you know, the, the damage that landowners do experience and just, you know, kind of sympathetic with it as issues come up in town or decisions get made, that that is an important thing that really affects their livelihood. And so I think just kind of recognizing that, that, yeah, they're beautiful to see, but um, <laughs> they're, they also are incredibly destructive and landowners need to be able to, to address the problem. And so we've had issues where landowners are trying to haze elk off their property but um, residents and, and, you know, wildlife enthusiasts are, are complaining. Well, yeah, they're feeding for one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's the thing people can do is not feed wildlife right. for sure. <laughs> but um, also, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll be complaining and they'll get upset with the landowners for harassing wildlife when that's, they need to protect their investment. You yeah, know? And absolutely. so I think people need to just be sympathetic to that. Um, but yeah, feeding is, is a whole other ball of wax. And that's something that, you know, people love to see them, but it's important to recognize that you are potentially causing a problem for other folks. And, um, and it's not just feeding it, but similarly, you know, with, with elk, the elk question is that uh, one thing that has changed in a lot of places is land ownership changes over time is that you've, you get, uh, there's now more landowners that have bought uh, land for basically for elk to hunt or to, or to, to keep elk there as opposed to necessarily timber, uh, harvest or or whatever that land used to be used for. There's uh, landowners that are a lot more tolerant of elk, which right. can work great if your neighbors are all on board with that and everybody likes the elk and you all right. want to be tolerant, then right. that's wonderful. Um, but also that can affect neighboring landowners that are trying to grow agricultural crops next door. And so I think, um, you know, just for everybody to be mindful of of how their interaction with wildlife could impact their neighbor. Yeah, absolutely. We had... We were talking about trick-or-treat earlier, you know, mm -hmm. and as a kid, you'd be like, yeah, I want to go back to that house because they always had the best candy. Right. Is there some of that with elk? You know, I mean, do they have memories like that? Sure. Like that? Yeah, that hunters. I mean, you know, I mean, do they literally go back to the same feeding area in the valley they uh, were before? So they, they can. It's, it's funny, though, because that's actually a pretty significant difference between deer and elk where deer have super high fidelity to their summer range and their winter range. They'll have kind of a small area that they use in the summer up on the national forest or, mm -hmm. or public land or, or industrial timber, it's fairly small home range. And then they'll have another spot that they use in the winter that they'll go back to that same spot. And that'll probably be a small area also. Huh. Uh, and if you go build a parking lot on that area, they're going to go sit on that asphalt because <laughs> that's just, that's where they go every time. Um, they're pretty hardwired to do that yeah. where elk are much more kind of nomadic, you know, they, they do remember very well spots where they had got reward. And so, yes, they'll go back and check out a lot of the same places that they were in previous years, but they're also much more likely to, to move through the landscape based on any number of variables uh -huh. both forage quality and quantity disturbance, whatever it is, they're a lot more likely to bounce around and find the sweet spot where they're comfortable and where they have the nutrition they need.
Interesting. All right. Well, Matt, thanks so much for being here. No problem. Yeah. Super interesting conversation. And yeah. Very good. Yeah. All right. You want to get us out of here, man? Yeah, let's do it. On this day in 1783, today's what? November 2nd? Uh 1783, George Washington, later the first president of the United States, bid farewell to his uh, army after the American Revolutionary War. On this day in 1867, women's fashion magazine Harper's Bazaar is first published. 1895 on this day, the first organized auto race in the United States is run in Chicago. Six cars race 52 miles on a lakefront course. Only two cars finished because there was a, it was in a blizzard. The very first auto race in, in America. <laughs> 1898, cheerleading begins in the United States as Johnny Campbell leads the crowd cheering on the football team at the University of Minnesota. <laughs> 1947, Howard Hughes flies the Spruce Goose for the first and last time mm-hmm. on this day. 1983, Thriller is released worldwide by Michael Jackson, 1983 on this day. And then 2020 on this day, Baby Shark by Pink Fong becomes the most watched <laughs> video on YouTube with over 7 billion views. Oh, my goodness. 7 billion views. <laughs> the number one movie in America on this day 10 years ago, Ender's Game. And then the quote for the day. Right there. A true leader has the confidence to stand alone, the courage to make tough decisions, and the compassion to listen to the needs of others. Mm-hmm. One more time. A true leader has the confidence to stand alone, the courage to make tough decisions, and the compassion to listen to the needs of others. And that's Douglas MacArthur. Good stuff. Once again, thank you to Matt Keenan, yeah. ODFNW wildlife biologist. Uh, we appreciate you. Yeah. yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, thank Good. you. Thanks, man. We'll see you guys soon.